Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. You are back in the House of Mystery. And, of course, I'm Al Warren. And uh, on the other side of the bench, we've got <laughs> uh, David North Martini. Martino. Either way. Uh, Either way, it's all good. Are you, are you doing martinis today or what? Uh, maybe after. <laughs> <laughs> or would it make any difference the way you No, no. On, you know. I'm a professional, come on. You are professional. And, uh, yeah. Like your doctor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give me your doctor's name. We'll, we'll, we'll mention yeah. her name on air. And, yeah, call her up. And yeah, everyone Tell her not to cancel my phone. I, I, you know, on the interview the other day, I almost gave out Roger Stone's phone number. Oh, did you? I remember when I was on that one crime beat, and they okay. were talking about Roger Stone. It's like, I don't talk about Roger Stone. It's just because I've known him, and they've talked, had him on the show several <laughs> times. And then, and I said, well, do you guys want a cell number here? You know, I'll give it out. <laughs> and then they faded, awesome. they faded to a break. They didn't want to do that. Uh, he got, he got um, subpoenaed today. Isn't that great? Oh, did he? Yeah. It's oh. good to know famous people. <laughs> did you give him a call? No. Yeah, I should text him. No, yeah. no, no, that's Well, anyway, enough about the fantasy world. Uh, speaking of, <laughs> but we're going to jump right back into it, um, but on paper. So uh, returning guest today, uh, he's going to talk about Shapers of Worlds. And, of course, this is um, a, a kind of a, a compilation book of uh, a lot of great authors that he's interviewed on his show, his podcast. Um, so Edward Willett. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, again, yeah, again, again, <laughs> over and over. Love you so much. Here, let's. Uh, I, Understandable. <laughs> yeah, you're in demand. They're breaking the doors down. You know, big lineup out the studio here. They don't realize that you're not here. So, <laughs> but that's right. We don't need to tell them. Don't want to disappoint them. Um, wow. So. Um, Let's talk about this now. Shapers of Worlds. This is um, kind of like—is uh, it kind of like your greatest hits? Do you call it writers you've interviewed? <laughs> uh, it's everybody I've interviewed was given the opportunity. So I'm now in my fourth year of the podcast. I'm coming up. I just did episode 97. I only do it every two weeks, so it doesn't pile up as fast as as some. But uh, coming up on 100 interviews, and I uh, had some really great authors on here, and so. The Shapers of Worlds Anthology was kind of a brainstorm I had in, uh, it was, let's see, it was April of 2019 at the annual general meeting of Sask Books, which is the uh, Association of Saskatchewan Publishers, of which I'm a member. Actually, I'm on the board now. I wasn't then, but I was at their AGM, 
and they had a, a publisher came in from Winnipeg who had kickstarted an anthology. Uh, she had comic connections, and the comics people love Kickstarters. So she had raised $100,000 for this thing. And I thought, that sounds pretty good, <laughs> uh, even though it's only Canadian dollars. Uh, so I, uh, I thought, well, you know, I know some authors. So my podcast was just a few months old at that time. It started in August of 2018. Uh, but I'd already interviewed people like John Scalzi and Joe Haldeman and David Brin and, you know, big names in the field. So I had this brainstorm that I would reach out to my first-year guests. Just arbitrarily, I had to cut it off somewhere uh, once I got to the end of my first year, which was summer of that year, and see if they would be interested in being part of an anthology if I could kickstart it successfully. And uh, I don't remember how many authors I had in that first year, but 18 of them, I, I offered it to everybody, and 18 of them said yes. So I had uh, nine uh, original stories and nine reprints in that first one. So I had uh, new fiction from Seanan McGuire and Tanya Huff and David Weber, L.D. Modisett Jr., DG, 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 DJ Butler, <laughs> Christopher Rocchio, John C. Wright, some guy named Edward Willett, and uh, Shelley Adina. And then I had stories by John Scalzi, David Brin, Joe Haldeman, Julie Schoneda, Fonda Lee, Dr. Charles E. Gannon, Gareth Elpel, Derek Kunskin, and Thorea Dyer. A pretty good lineup. And I went and tried to kickstart it. Uh, in March of 2020, when you know when nothing else was happening um, <laughs> in the world, uh, but fortunately, uh, even while people were being uh, locked up and locked down and masked and put in corners and whatever else was happening to them in that month, uh, people came through with the money, and I raised uh, around $16,000 Canadian. Uh, most of that money went to pay the authors. Well, that one succeeded. It came out last year, and so this year I thought, hey, I'll do it again. And, oops, I did it again. Yeah. So we now have uh, Shapers of Worlds Volume 2, and this one is bigger, better, fatter. Um, it's 540 pages, so wow. um, 24 stories. The last one only had 18, and this one has 18 original stories and only six reprints, and another amazing list of authors, uh, Kelly Armstrong, Marie Brennan, Helen Dale, Candace Jane Dorsey, Lisa Foyle, Susan Forrest, James Allen Gardner, Matthew Hughes, Helen Kennedy, Lisa Kessler, Adria Laycraft, Ira Naiman, Garth Nix, Tim Pratt, Edward Savio, Brian Thomas Smith, Jeremy Saul, oh, and Edward Willett again. And then there are stories by uh, Jeffrey Carver, Barb Hambly, Nancy Kress, David D. Levine, S.M. Sterling, and Carrie Vaughn. So just like the first one, there's all kinds of bestsellers and award winners and all that great stuff in there. And it's just been very exciting to bring these things into the world, and I'm already working on Shapers of Worlds Volume 3. Well, I'm wondering, as an editor, how do you pick uh, the stories that are going to go into each volume? Uh, what are you looking for? Well, these are a little unusual. A lot of anthologies have a theme. Like, I've been part of themed anthologies. There was one uh, I'm in called uh, uh, Modern Deity's Guide to Surviving Humanity. <laughs> and it was the idea that ancient deities had survived into the present world and what were they doing. And I picked the Sumerian goddess of beer, who, of course, is running a bar. Um, and that was mine. So a lot, all of the stories would have a theme. I was, there was another one I was in called My Battery is Low and is, It is Getting Dark, which is about technology that has long since left its original purpose behind but is doing something else. Uh, but this didn't have a theme except all these people were guests on my podcast. So what it really is is an author's showcase. So I literally left it up to the authors. I said, you know, provide me with the story that you would like to see in this anthology and uh, made it easy for me to select. I only turned down one and she gave me a different one instead, and that was just because I was trying to keep, I was trying to keep it from slipping into the mature audiences only. And uh, the story she originally sent me was one of the more explicit ones I've read in my life. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I did make that judgment call, but for the most part, I was able to take whatever the authors wanted to offer. Wow, you never know what you're going to get then. No, and it has everything from um, uh, alternate history to far future science fiction, to straight ahead sword and sorcery, to uh, supernatural urban fantasy. If you don't like one story, the next one will be different. Uh, I think everybody will find something they like in it, and I think most people will find they like most of the stories because these are always, these are always all really great authors. Yeah. Oh, so what do you, I don't want to say it too much, but what, what do you consider your favorite? Or did you have some that kind of stuck out for you that you didn't expect and that were really good or appealing to you? Well, I liked them all. Of course. Uh, the, <laughs> the two I wrote I really liked a lot. Uh, 
<laughs> oh, that's hard to say. Uh, well, let me look. Let me look at the first one here and see. Um, well, one in the first one, although it's a reprint, one that I was really, really thrilled to have was uh, one by Joe Haldeman called the Tricentennial, which won the Hugo Award back in 1976. And it's a great story, and I always like Joe's stuff, but the really great thing was that when I was reading his great novel, The Forever War, as a teenager, uh, back when I was you know, in, in the early 70s, uh, I would have been, I would never have believed that the day would come when I would not only have met Joe Haldeman, interviewed Joe Haldeman, had dinner with Joe Haldeman, but had actually published a short story of his in a book that I had edited. That would never have crossed my mind. So in some ways, that's the one that I think really hit me the hardest in the first one that I was actually, what I was actually doing here, uh, working with this level of authors. Uh, on just the story level, hmm, hmm, that's a tough one. I don't think I'd want to say. I will say in the second one, one that I really liked is one by a fellow Canadian author, Candace Jane Dorsey, which is a very odd, in a way, story. Um, and yet it, it, uh, and it's really hard to explain, to even describe it. It's a woman in prison, and she seems to be there for genetically modifying things, and yet she also has the ability to alter timelines, and all that works together somehow. <laughs> it just makes for a really, a really great little story. Um, you didn't get David Martino in this. Boy. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a fantasy writer. <laughs> well, so far, it's only gets on my podcast, and there's a lot of authors I haven't interviewed. So, Well, it, well actually, but that, that's kind of the key to it. Is, uh, is it this is kind of like uh, people you've invited on and you've talked with and stuff. Um, how have you selected the people you've had on the show? Like, is it is it uh, all people you've really admired their work or something about them, or is it just kind of uh, just is there is there any sort of theme to that? Well, the first ones were people I knew really well already because they were the most likely to say yes. So uh, John Scalzi and I have known each other for a long time. He was uh, the very first science fiction convention panel he was on. I was also on. So he came in, he was late, he came in, sat down at the panel, and we met each other then. His career has gone a little, I mean, he recently bought a church and a house, and I don't know, <laughs> he's, he's, he's uh, had a more successful career than I have in the a, in a money, money side of things, for sure. But we have known each other for a long time, so I felt I could reach out to him, and he said yes. And uh, Rob Sawyer, Robert J. Sawyer, um, you know, Hugo, Nebula award-winning author, all fellow Canadian, I've known him for a long time. So it was easy to begin with to reach out to the people that I'd met because I have been in the field now for a long time and have gone to a lot of conventions and met a lot of authors. Um, then at times I've simply reached out cold to someone who I thought sounded interesting. Uh, I've been turned down a few times, but not always. So I'd never met Victoria Schwab, another big name, but I reached out and she said yes. Um, in the current one, there's people like... Uh, Barb Hambly, who's just somebody I always wanted to talk to, and I just reached out, and she said yes. Garth Nix, I think I met once, and he said yes. So, you know, most authors will say yes if you ask them if they want to talk about themselves for an hour. <laughs> I, I said yes when you asked me, so, you know. <laughs> well, I was wondering, uh, how, do you, um, how do you structure your anthologies? Um, I know traditionally there's usually, like, the strongest story in the beginning and at the end, you get the lead and the anchor story. Do you do that, or do you have... Um, uh, some other way that you that you structure the stories uh, to, to to create, I guess, its own uh, running narrative throughout the anthology. I, I just do it by feel. Um, generally, I try to have a really strong story up front. So this one I started with Kelly Armstrong. I know from experience that people will buy books just because Kelly has a story in it. Mm. You know, that seems like a good thing, and it's a really good story as well. And then uh, it was easy picking the last one. It's a reprint by S. M. Sterling and. Uh, I had suggested 5,000 words. Most authors went over that. I had to cap my payment at 6,000 words, but most some authors went beyond that anyway. And then in his case, he said, well, I know you've got a cap on how much you can pay me, but here, take this 16,000-word reprint of a great, uh, <laughs> I guess you called it a novella. And uh, so uh, that was easy to end with that. It also has a great closing line that kind of was nice to have at the end of the book. And the first anthology I finished with Joe Haldeman with Tricentennial, uh, and then I started with my own story um, just because I felt that it 
it had something that I thought spoke to what I was going for. Although I did have one critic saying, oh, you know, it's pretty full of yourself to put your story first. But to be fair, I was a guest on my own podcast. I interviewed myself. Uh, my, my, my pseudonym, E.C. Blake, interviewed me. He was my guest host, and he interviewed me just as if he were the host and I were the guest. And wow. we, sound, we sound a lot alike, but he has a southern accent. So it would be, oh, so tell me, Ed, I'd like, I'd like to know more about this, uh, this thing that you're doing now. And I say, well, E.C., uh, thank you for asking that question. And, and the funniest thing was, my, my editor loved it, that dog book, Sheila Gilbert, loved it when she heard it. The funniest thing was I, I met a guy I'd gone to high school with at a book signing. He said, you know, I heard that interview. That guy sounds a lot like you. And I said, yeah, yeah, he does, doesn't he? <laughs> he, did not realize, he did not realize it was me interviewing myself. <laughs> yeah, you're, well, you're lucky they didn't say, well, why don't, why don't you use that guy all the time? <laughs> I was worried about that. Yeah, People might like his voice more than mine. I don't know. Maybe they like that accent. <laughs> Depends on where they're listening from. You never know. Um, well, that's interesting. Um, so, so is, this is sort of turning into something you probably didn't expect then, in a way. Well, I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea if the Kickstarter would work. I had hopes because of the level of authors involved. They will all bring their own fans to the Kickstarter. And, they, you know, it was a little scary. They usually are. You get this big surge at the beginning of the month if it's a month-long campaign, and then there are days when it barely budges. And then usually at the end, if you're lucky, you get another surge and maybe it goes over. Unless you're one of those that's really lucky and that first surge pushes you over and everything after that is gravy. It was a little close, but both of them funded. You know, once the first one funded, I felt a little more confident doing the second one. But certainly I had no idea until I went to that annual general meeting of SAS Books back in April 2019. I had had thought of doing a Kickstarter, but I'd always thought I would try to Kickstart something for myself. Uh, So... And the other thing is I have my own publishing company. So what this has done is put my little publishing company, Shadowpaw Press, uh, on the map a bit, and I am hoping to expand it into to do more stuff. I founded it mainly because I have a lot of books that are backlist and publishers have gone away and the rights have come back to me and all that sort of thing that I wanted to get out there. But I've always wanted to do other stuff, and this has started me in that direction, and I hope to continue to develop Shadowpaw Press and to publish other books by authors who are not me. <laughs> and this at least gives some sort of track record to Shadow Pop Press. Well, you could always do like Dave, just sell yourself if the Kickstarter doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> it, doesn't <laughs> it doesn't make enough, you know. So, no. No. I mean, mind you, you end up owing more money than you could hmm. ever pay back. Do you, um, how, do you, how is the sci-fi community? Like, is it, is it fairly... fairly um, together is or every is everyone kind of on board is it like a big family do you find it's way broader than it used to be there certainly was a time when you could have read all the science fiction novels being published in a given year um, and you would have could have known everybody and there's still people left from that era but these days it's so fragmented and with self-publishing there are people out there who are writing science fiction fantasy and they're selling thousands and thousands of copies. They never go to conventions. They're not part of any of the writers' organizations, and they don't, you know, they're not part of, they're part of their own communities, but they're not part of the old-style science fiction community. Um, my experience at the conventions has always been very pleasant, but I do live in Regina, Saskatchewan, which is a long way from, uh, you know, the people who hang out in places like New York and L.A. And, and stuff like that, and even anywhere in the States where you can get to some of these conventions more easily more cheaply than I can. So I've met a lot of authors. I usually meet them briefly, have dinner or something, or say hi and chat for a little bit. Um, but I'm not tied really closely into it. So I don't know. I think it's more fragmented than it used to be. But and generally, I think people in the field are, are supportive of new writers and uh, other writers, uh, simply because so many of them started out as fans a lot of the people who write science fiction fantasy start out as fans of science fiction and fantasy. I think maybe even more so than in other genres. I, I can't say that for sure, but I suspect it might be true. It seems like every time you meet somebody who reads science fiction fantasy, they want to tell you about the novel they're writing. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I think in that regard, the field is very supportive of each other and, and of other people who are writing the same crazy stuff 
Well, so when you look to um, things like Netflix and streaming services and stuff, and there's a lot of science fiction and fantasy and, and things going on there, you know, series and movies and stuff like that, do you like the way it's going? It's a golden age for this stuff. I mean, when I think back to when I was a kid, how desperate I was to see anything that, you know, what did I have? Well, Star Trek reruns. Space 1999, which is the stupidest premise of any science fiction <laughs> ever developed. Yeah. There was a show called The Star Lost, which uh, Harlan Ellison was involved with, but he changed his name on it to Cord Wayner Bird because he was so ashamed of what it had become. Um, so, you know, that was about all we had going on back then. Oh, UFO, I remember that. And, you know, yeah, Doctor Who, but I didn't see much of it. So it was very thin on the ground. And uh, And now, you know, you watch stuff, you even watch stuff that's not very good story-wise, and it looks so great <laughs> because CGI has made it possible to put anything online. So it really is a golden age for science fiction. Uh, I can't even keep up with all the Star Trek shows these days. It was almost dead for a while, and now it seems like there's a new Star Trek show popping up every couple of months. Um, so I like it. Uh, I don't watch all of it. I can't. Um, I find some that I like, some I've looked at and meh. Uh, but there sure is a lot out there. And, of course, my great hope is that uh, perhaps uh, somebody will <laughs> pick up one of mine. <laughs> well, you were talking about, about uh, you know, a lot of people in fandom are also writing novels and uh, want to be writers. And I was just wondering, do you have any advice for new writers or, or for those who are transitioning into science fiction and fantasy for maybe another genre? Well, first of all, you have to read it. Especially, uh, that's the most important thing. Occasion, okay, I've done a lot of work, like as a writer in residence at libraries and, you know, writing classes and workshops and things. And what happens a lot with young writers, going back to Netflix and all the science fiction stuff on TV and movies, is that you get regurgitated Star Wars or regurgitated mm -hmm. Star Trek, or it, you can see the media roots of it, and it's clear that they haven't read or, or science fiction currently not or at least not current science fiction. So I think reading it is, is very, very important. Um, and that's how you also get a sense for what, how stories are told and how you deal with some of the problems that are specific to science fiction and fantasy, things like, you know, making magic believable or, or the dreaded info dump, how to, how to get that information out there, keep the story going. That's how you pick all that stuff up. Uh, other than that, the only advice I ever give anybody is to keep writing because the only way you learn to do this stuff is by doing it. Um, and don't expect to necessarily be good the first thing you write because um, you won't be. <laughs> <laughs> it's different now, too, because people can self-publish, right? So yeah. you can write anything. You can have it on Amazon tomorrow, even though you only wrote it yesterday and you didn't edit it or spell check it in between. You can do that. Um but I, I, and then it's it's all part of this vast mass of stuff, and that makes it hard for everybody to be discovered or, or found by the readers who are out there. So, um, yeah. yeah, I I wish they would. I wish people would take a little more time and work harder at the craft before they rush straight on to publishing. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even the big names. I I just watched that Zack Snyder one. You know, Army of the. What is it, Army of the Dead, Dead or something like that? And what a, that, that, that was that was terrible. I mean, I hate to say that, but it was not that good. It was like watching a Walking Dead. Um, so it can be disappointing. What do you what do you consider, um, or what do you think is important um, for a good science fiction or fantasy? Like, what what as a writer, what would you consider to be important? I think it's important that the story you're telling can only be told in that framework, ideally. Like, the thing that makes it science fiction has to be central to the story. Um, if it could just as easily be a Western or a present-day story, if you, you know, then maybe it should be. Maybe you're actually not telling the story in the best possible way. But usually, you know, science fiction is supposed to be a, a genre of ideas, um, big ideas. And uh, there's so many things you can do in science fiction. You you and fantasy that you can't do in literary fiction, but that magical element or that uh, technological element, I think, has to be central to it uh, to make it to make it work. But at the same time, you can't forget about characters because ultimately everything is about characters. Um, so you can go the other way where you have stories that are entirely about um, gee whiz technology or 
or magic or something, and the characters are so much cardboard, and that's not satisfying either. So like everything else, it's a, it's a balancing act. I can actually forgive bad characters if the, if the explosions and stuff are cool enough. I can actually get over <laughs> some of those other things. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really 12 at heart. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, 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 I, so do you, do you get into the hard science fiction, like hard sci-fi, they call it? Oh, yeah. I've... As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I've read a lot of that and enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I've read everything. I'm quite eclectic. I read every. I read everything from... Young adult fantasy to where oh, I hate zombies. I don't read zombie. Or don't care about zombies at all. But other than that, um, everything from urban fantasy to sword and sorcery to high tech to near future to I'll read it. <laughs> Except for a zombie, your zombie, zombophobia. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm zombophobic. They're dead to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, literally. Eh? Do you follow other people's rules? Uh, like, you know, when you get into that type of fantasy, like, you know, we said zombies and stuff, or there's witches and there's 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 all of the other elements that make up that fantasy part of the sci-fi. Do you, do you kind of follow the rules or what people have already stated about them? So if you get into, like, witches or something like that or, or vampires or something. There's um, a certain amount of lore that I think you need to at least show that you know that it exists. Um, but in general, I, the only time I've written that kind of thing is actually in my World Shaper series from Daw Books, and it's literally about people from our world setting up their own worlds, shaping their own worlds. And the third one, the Moonlit World, uh, was vampires and werewolves. It was shaped by people who really loved vampires and werewolves. And so, and my characters from our world are from a very close version of our world. And she has the same pop culture references as everybody else. And so <laughs> I was able to play with that when she discovered that whoever had shaped the world actually had changed some of what she expected. So, you know, you can see yourself in that mirror. Well, of course I can. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. Uh, I don't remember if that was one specific example, but uh, 
so I was able to play with those tropes use and use the ones I wanted and twist the ones I, I wanted, and it all made perfect sense. But, you know, all this stuff is made up, so if you want to make it up in a different way, there are no rules. <laughs> I was wondering, do you, do you read outside of fantasy and science fiction, or has there been any other uh, influences on your work uh, outside of those genres? Um, that's the main part of my pleasure reading growing up. These days, I'm more likely to... Most of my reading happens when I read out loud to my wife because our kitchen is too <laughs> small for us to both cook side by side. So while she cooks, I read, and we worked our way through... We worked our way through the entire Hamilton biography, the one that got turned into the musical, but the book itself is way longer than the musical. Uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, we're currently reading uh, books by Alan Doyle, who's a Canadian songwriter, very good storyteller from Newfoundland. And we've read uh, stuff by Matt Ridley, and we've read a history, uh, history books. And so I actually read quite a bit of nonfiction that way. Um, I read less fiction than I used to, and it's just because I'm so busy doing stuff with words i don't seem to have time to read the way i would like to but certainly not the way when i was a kid <laughs> so do you find that um while you're reading uh does that kind of make it harder for you to to write do you get like the voices uh, or, or, the, or the cadence or whatever of other writers in your mind when you I, sit down and write your i've own never mind? i've never noticed that happening um, so I don't think so. I mean, I can sometimes tell that where there that there are influences from books I've read. Uh, Star Song, which was the young adult fantasy we talked about, or science fiction novel we talked about last time I was on, was very much influenced by Andre Norton, um, mm -hmm. Moon of Three Rings, and books like that. Um, there's the, the whole idea of this sort of family that flies around in space in starships. That's, there's something very close to that in Andre Norton. Um, so that was influence. And of course, you can always see Heinlein's influence. He's, he just influences. Uh, if you grew up when I grew up, uh, he's, he's, he's in everything that I write, I'm sure. So yeah, those, those kind of influences are there, but I don't think I find myself copying people's actual prose style. Uh, I've been doing this a long time. I think mine is pretty, I think I have pretty good control over it. <laughs> so do you think you'll keep running with this now that it seems to be successful? This is your second one you set out now. Are you going to keep doing it? Yeah, and uh, I've already got um, – I've already reached out to my third-year guests for the Kickstarter I hope to run in March for Shapers of Worlds Volume 3, and I'll have, for example, F. Paul Wilson is providing a reprint, mm. Cory Doctorow uh, a reprint. Cat Rambo, James Morrow, these are some more big names. And there are, I should say that even though there are a lot of big names, there are also people, I don't just interview big names, I do a lot. But every once in a while I'll talk to somebody who's pretty new or, or independently published, you know, not from a traditional publisher. Or I've talked to, like in this one, I have a, a story by Lisa Foyles, who's best known for uh, having been in the, Nickelodeon show. She's an actress <laughs> when she was a kid. That's kind of where she got well known. Uh, but now she's writing middle grade fantasy. So uh, it's uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting mixture. And I think I've got twenty already lined up for the next one. So it'll be another substantial book, assuming that the Kickstarter works. And I just I'm already into my fourth year, and I've already talked to more wonderful authors. So and I've already usually when I do a podcast at the end of the interview, I'll send them a copy of one of the uh, anthologies and ebook by way of thanks and say, oh, I'll probably be doing one again. Uh, so I'll probably be reaching out to you in a few months and asking if you'll want to be part of this. And they almost all say, oh, sure, I'd love to. So I hope that it'll continue to be a series until I get tired of doing the podcast. And I'm not there yet. <laughs> well, no, it doesn't sound like, well, you're saying you're doing one every two weeks. How do people find your podcast? Like, where, where do you market it? Uh, well, of course, it has its own website, theworldshapers.com, and then it's everywhere. It's on Apple. It's on Spotify. It's everywhere you can find a podcast. You'll probably be able to find it. Um, and, of course, the other thing is, again, especially when you have a major author who has a big social media following, uh, they're my best marketing tool because they will say, I just did this great podcast, and people will come and find it, and then hopefully they'll continue to listen to more. It's not, you know, it's very um, process-oriented. 
it's about the creative process and exactly how people write their books. And so it's perhaps a little aimed a bit more at other writers, although I think fans of the, and readers should enjoy it too. There's always a biographical section at the beginning, and things can branch off a little bit, but it generally follows the process from idea through planning, through writing, through revision, and then, you know, philosophical questions about why do you write and why does anybody write and why write this crazy science fiction and fantasy stuff specifically. Um, but uh, it's averaging, let's see, Last time I did the math, it's well over 400 downloads per episode is the average, which isn't, you know, setting the world on fire, but it's not not being listened to either. So uh, it's yeah. certainly worth continuing to do it. Yeah, uh, well, and hopefully you, you're doing a lot of it um, for yourself as well, you know. It, yeah, I mean, I just like to talk to these people. I've picked up ideas. And, again, I've got the anthologies out of it, and I also hope, to uh, do some books that will collect the collected wisdom of these authors, if you like, about writing. Um, yeah, yeah. And put those into some books that, again, would come out through Shadowpaw Press. Um, so it's, you know, always looking at ways to spin it off and make it grow. And uh, it'd be nice to make money at it. So, you know, anybody wants to sponsor it, I'm available. Um, <laughs> there you go. There you go. We'll put out the put out the word for it. You know, let's let's get on this. Um, um, so your process itself, when you when you set down to um, to actually uh, do an interview, how how is it that you prep for something like this with a with a writer, and you're going through kind of the concepts and stuff? If I can, I get a copy of the book we're going to talk about. The, the premise is it's not necessarily the latest book. It's not really that great a podcast for promoting new books, although it can be. But often we've talked about books that have been out for a while or some their most famous series or something like that. But if I can, I'll get a copy of the book. I don't always get it read all the way through, but at least I can get a sense of it. Um, and then I, I always try to at least have some basic knowledge of their background and achievements and and all of that, uh, so that I can ask intelligent questions. I've been on the receiving end of interview. I've been an interviewer many times because before I was a podcaster, I had a radio program for a while where I interviewed local arts, artsy types, and I hosted a TV show for like 10 years, which was a live call-in show, and I have um, I was a newspaper reporter at the start of my career. So I've done a lot of interviewing, which is one thing that I brought to the podcast. Uh, but I've also been on the receiving end of interviews and uh, I am not speaking of yours, but there are occasions when you wonder why they couldn't at least have read the press release before they started talking to you or, you know, at least know who you were or be able to get your name right or, you know, all these sorts of things. So I at least try to do that minimum level so that when I'm talking to an author, um, I sound intelligent. I want to sound as intelligent as my guest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who are you again? No. Um, <laughs> what were we talking about? No. I, well, I think I think it's really important to uh, to um, get to know who you have on or kind of what they're doing, and to be able to present that to to listeners. Um, but but so when you sit down and and actually write, and and that, uh, do you actually have the whole story in your mind? and kind of where you're going to finish and what you're going to do with that character before you start writing, or do you just kind of do it as it comes? Uh, that's the classic, are you a pantser or a plot, plotter? Sort of. Question. Yeah. Um, in general, my stories are plotted out to the level of uh, two or three pages of notes. If it's a novel, it might be a bit more than that. If it's a short story, it's probably less than that. But, you know, a few pages of notes... So I have a general sense of the plot and some major incidents and generally where it's going. Uh, then I'll start writing, and occasionally it's happened on a, in at least a couple of books. I got about two-thirds of the way in and realized it wasn't going to the ending I thought I was going to, and I had to replot to the end. So you can all the thinking you do ahead of time, um, you know, it's like no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. I don't think any outline actually survives the writing process. In my case, now I have talked to authors who are much more pinned down to their outline. Uh, one I always mention is Peter V. Brett, who best-selling author of The Demon Cycle, who says he writes 150-page outlines before he starts writing the book itself, and then it's just a matter of fleshing that out. On the other end, there was um, authors who 
just have a general idea and just start writing and discover the whole thing as they write. So I'm sort of, I like to have a general sense of it in my head. Um, I may never look at that outline while I'm writing. Once I've figured it out in my head, I just start going and sometimes I only look at it if I get stuck. And sometimes that's when I find out that, you know, this isn't even going to work anymore and I have to rethink it. But at least it's a starting point. So you're kind of, you, and you write off of the basis of, of characters. So you're, you're writing a character story rather than a setting, or is it the other way around? It depends on the story. I've had books that started as a setting. I've had books that started from an idea of a character. Um, I've had books that I can't remember <laughs> where they came from. <laughs> depends how much you were drinking. Yeah, that and it depends <laughs> on how long ago it was because, you know, um, quite off, or it's a big concept, like in the case of the World Shapers, it was just this idea of uh, uh, this sort of all these. And the original idea of World Shapers, as it turned out, it's like these portals between worlds, and they're like these glowing things, and you walk through them. But in the original concept, it was going to be a fantasy story, and it was a valley with caves going off of it. When you went into these caves, you found yourself in a different world. Um, and I think that was influenced by Philip Jose Farmer's River World series, maybe. Um, but in that case, I was actually had this kind of concept just of a central place from which you could access other worlds. And then I built everything else around that, and it changed. That concept still remains, but the character and the, the time setting and the fact that it's now more of a science fiction than a fantasy story, all of that changed around that central concept. Uh, in the case of my uh, trilogy, Masks of Agrima, which was the one that E.C. Blake wrote, um, it was very much uh, more of a character, like a, the daughter of someone who had an important magical role in society, and that turned out to be masks. Was so there's also this concept, but then the character came along very early as well. So it can it can come from many different directions. Have you ever uh, been working on a story that you couldn't finish? Oh yeah, um, there's a novel long, long time ago that I wrote. Uh, I can still remember <laughs> how the music used to... Sorry, it's really hard to stop that song once you started. Um, yeah, it was... It was a climate change novel, but it was set on an alien world, and the climate was changing the other way. It was like an ice age coming in. And it just never got past a certain point. I just stalled, and I never went back to it, and I don't have any great desire to go back to it, so that was probably the right decision. But that's happened a couple of times where I've written a large chunk of something and then it just kind of, I never quite finished it. Uh, there was one thing, years and years ago, I was writing it as a serial novel. I was like writing it online in full view of anybody who wanted to watch me doing it, you know, so a new thing would just pop up. These days people do that too, but I, this was a long time ago. And... Uh, I think in that case I was just winging it as I went, and I think I kind of wrote myself into a corner, and I had nowhere to go. And I thought, well, this is just going to end, <laughs> and it did. No, but I, it's yeah. all still practice. It's all you know. Yeah. You're all still learning things when you do that. Yeah, and I wonder if there's if there's some some novel or books you've written that you look at now that you wished you could change. Well, generally I can because most of my my oldest ones have come back to me as publishers have gone away, <laughs> and I get them back. So when Shadowpaw Press puts them out, I do give them a bit of a polish. Uh, there hasn't been anything major, but I've certainly fixed a couple of things that I wasn't that happy about uh, in some older ones. Yeah, uh, It's interesting, though. I put out a short story collection, uh, Paths to the Stars. I haven't written that many short stories. It's, so this was like 40 years of writing to get 22 short stories for this and uh, collection I put out. First thing I put out from Shadowpaw Press. And the oldest story in there was written when I was 18, and the newest story was written just a couple of years ago. And uh, it was interesting to see a reviewer say that they couldn't tell just by reading it which ones were written by young me and which ones were written by old me. I don't know if that's good or bad. Does that mean I haven't improved <laughs> at all <laughs> and I'm still writing like a teenager? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Going around in circles, maybe. You know. uh, which, which book would you suggest for someone that has never read one of your stories, so not any of the shapers, but, uh, you know, if they were to pick up one book, which which one would you suggest to get to know you? Hmm. I always like to recommend a standalone in that case. Right. Uh, and I don't have a lot of those, but the 
if you wanted something on the science fiction-y side, The City Born um, by Daw is a standalone science fiction novel. And on the fantasy side, under another of my pseudonyms, Lee Arthur Chain, uh, there's a novel called Mage Bane, which is actually the longest one I've written uh, and is a bit magic and, and uh, steampunk. Uh, so those two are two good standalone novels. Uh, on the young adult side, there's no question that Star Song, when we were just talking about, is the one that's currently nearest and dearest to my heart because it was one that I resurrected that had been around for a long time and I finally polished it up. Well, there's one that I went back and fixed up because it was originally a much simpler story and I complexified it and added in viewpoint characters and brought in another 30 years of writing experience before I published it. Uh, so that's a good young adult science fiction. And on the young adult fantasy side, <laughs> I know you only asked me for one, but <laughs> on the young adult fantasy side, I, I am very, very fond of a series called The Shards of Excalibur, which is a modern-day Arthurian story, which uh, actually starts right here uh, in Regina, Saskatchewan, when the Lady of the Lake shows up in our little downtown lake because everybody's got to be somewhere and uh, tells a local girl that she's not a lady of the lake and she has to find the scattered shards of Excalibur before Merlin can. He's a bad guy, and he's like a Bill Gates, Steve Jobs kind of computer guy in the modern world. So I'm very fond of that series, and uh, they have the advantage of being short, so the entire five-book series is only 300,000 words, which is like one Tad Williams novel. So Yeah, yeah. Or do those, do those, those evil characters give people uh, vaccines with chips in them or something, or? <laughs> I, w I was not thinking in terms of vaccines when I was writing that one. <laughs> well, you know, so there you go. You can you can catch the new people and that. You know, I, you know, people. I'm, I give people good ideas all the time, mm. <laughs> <laughs> and they never use them. <laughs> well, I, well, that's it's it's really good. Um, what's next? What's coming up next for you? Well, I do have a new novel coming out from Daw. Uh, I may write the fourth book in the World Shaper series, but at the moment Dawes um, asked me to move on from that series. So uh, I'm now writing, or have written, a uh, comic far future space opera called The Tangled Stars, uh, which I've had a lot of fun with. It's, uh, and in fact, my story in uh, Shapers of Worlds Volume 2, which is called Tybalt's Tale, is a prequel to it, and it introduces the three main characters from it. There's uh, Cooper Douglas, who's a kind of... Uh, he calls himself a pre-salvager, uh, which is just his way of saying thief. But, you know, he says everything ends up as salvaged sooner or later. He just <laughs> takes it a little sooner in the process. <laughs> um, and then there's a character named Lisa Gray, who uh, is kind of an AI expert in, in the book. She's actually a cop on the moon. And then the third character is a uh, AI-uplifted, somewhat genetically modified talking cat. <laughs> the Tybalt of Tybalt's Tale. <laughs> so I've had a ton of fun with that. In the book itself, uh, every chapter starts with a little bit of cat wisdom from Tybalt. So I, I got to use all my uh, my cat jokes <laughs> in there. And, yeah, that's in the editor's hand. It's due out next fall. So there will be a rewrite coming sometime in the not-too-distant future. I should get my editor's notes and be rewriting that, and that will go through the process next year. Come out about the same time as Shapers of Worlds Volume 3, if that Kickstarter happens. Hmm. And then I've got other things I'm writing just on spec, or, and I'm quite a, kind of trying to decide what that next thing is going to be, so I don't quite know what that's going to be yet. And I will also have some of my other old stuff will be coming out from Shadowpaw Press, uh, but I don't know exactly which one will be next. There's still two or three or four novels that have been orphaned by dying publishers. I did not kill them, but they died no, on I'm their own. Sure, I'm sure I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> poison. Yeah. yeah. I want my book back. Die, yeah. die. Yeah, that's right. I can see it. I believe. Uh, so where do people come find all that stuff? Do you have it all centrally located? Do you have a website? Do you have like uh, some place you want people to find you? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, if you go to Amazon, everything's available on Amazon. You find my page, Edward Willett, uh, Amazon page. Uh, I do have a website, edwardwillett.com, two T's on Willett, very important. I do have an online shop called edwardwillettshop.com if you want to buy autographed books. It's a little behind. I need to uh, add the anthologies, although I didn't really write them, but, you know, if you want the editor's signature, you get it there. Um, Shadowpaw Press has its own website, shadowpawpress.com, and all the books are available there. You can download the ebooks directly from that website. I make more money that way. Uh, and you can also order the, 
the print books through there. And then any online bookstore would have my books. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Of course, we'll have that connected as well. So, uh, you know, just uh, for, for the old people in the crowd, um, which I'm one of them, um, how do you describe sci-fi to fantasy and all these different subsets? You've got all these different styles um, and steampunk. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> what, what does that all mean to someone um, looking at, you know, the time machine to all of a sudden like, wow, what else all this stuff? It was uh, Orson Scott Card, I think, who said that uh, fantasy has trees and science fiction has rivets. So that's a pretty good <laughs> description. Uh, when it comes to the subgenres, there's just um, there's just a lot of them, um, and more and more all the time. So you don't have to know what steampunk means. You look at the cover, you read the description, and if it sounds interesting, you read it. Um, you don't you don't have to be an expert in in all these subgenres. I think the main difference between science fiction and fantasy is that science fiction is something that has uh that could happen theoretically. There's uh you know, the technology is at least based on our world and perhaps extrapolating into the future. And fantasy generally is something that could not happen in our world because it's it's magic and ghosts and other made up things like that. So uh I think that's the big difference between the two of them. But you can have exactly the same story and the same kind of uh, um, effects, uh, you know, the big set pieces of strange things happening, and in one story it's happening because of magic, and in another it's happening because of technology. Uh, but because one has rivets and one has trees, they're two different genres. <laughs> well, there we go. Now I know, sort of. That, that's fantastic. Well, again, I really appreciate you coming on the show. We are wrapping up today, and, um, of course, the book we're talking about is Shapers of Worlds, and that's uh, edited and one story written by our guest, Edward Willett. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much. Thanks, Edward. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 